Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Today we celebrate the liturgical memorial of Saints Timothy and Titus, who were very close companions of uh, the Apostle Paul, and also bishops uh, in the early church, uh, Timothy, Bishop of Ephesus, uh, Titus, Bishop of Crete. Um, We have in the canon of the New Testament, we have two letters to Timothy from St. Paul, one letter to Titus from St. Paul, and uh, Pope Benedict XVI, I should mention, uh, actually discussed these early bishops during a general audience back on December 13th of 2006, where he's, he had very—it's a very good reflection if you want to take a look at it. Uh, it's on the UWTN website. But let me tell you a little bit about these, these two men. Um, let's take Timothy first. From the affectionate way in which Paul writes of him, it would look like Timothy is his favorite disciple. Uh, let me give you an example. This comes from uh, St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. Now, he's writing from prison to the church at Philippi. Uh, this was an important parish. Uh, Philippi was the leading city in northern Greece, and it was positioned strategically be- right on the major travel route between Italy in the west and Asia Minor in the east. So the city was significant. It was called um, Philippi after the father of Alexander the Great. So it gives you a hint as to how the city saw its own greatness. So Paul and his companions, uh, Timothy, Silas, and perhaps Luke, founded the church in Philippi there during Paul's second missionary journey in the year 50. Now this is about 15 to 17 years after St. Paul's Damascus Road conversion that I discussed yesterday with Steve Ray. 15 to 17 years after his conversion. And this is what he says to the Philippians about Timothy. Quote, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send you Timothy soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy. He has proven worth. He's been a son to me, and I've been a father to him. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it's going to go with me here in prison. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come. So Timothy was dear to St. Paul, and he was also useful, uh, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, His background, Timothy comes from a distinguished family that was Jewish on his mother's side. Um, His mother Eunice, grandmother Lois, were probably converted during Paul's first visit to Lystra. uh, That's described in Acts chapter 14. And it's generally accepted that Timothy was born there in Lystra, uh, which, interestingly enough, like Philippi, did not have a synagogue. Didn't have very many Jews living there. When Paul returned to that region on his second missionary journey, that's when he was impressed with the young Timothy and resolved that he would take Timothy with him, probably to replace John Mark, whom he didn't really trust very much. And John Mark had been the cause of the split between Paul and Barnabas that's described in Acts chapter 15. So Timothy had been trained in the scriptures under his mother and grandmother, um, Lystra did not have a synagogue, and uh, Timothy had not been circumcised. That becomes an issue later uh, in his work with Paul. But uh, he had a good reputation among the believers in Lystra, and so he joins Paul. In the first letter to Timothy, Paul reminds Timothy, as though Timothy needs some reminding, Paul reminds him of a prophetic word that had pointed to Timothy 
and that Timothy had received a gift of the Holy Spirit when elders had laid hands on him and ordained him. Before ordaining him, however, St. Paul had circumcised them. Now, this is strange. Some people are strange. Timothy had been raised in Judaism by his mother and grandmother, but he had never been circumcised. This may be because his father was Greek. There was not a strong uh, Jewish community in Lystra. His father was Greek, and the Greeks despised circumcision. They saw it as mutilation of a perfectly shaped organ. In fact, the Greek artwork of the period actually celebrates uh, penises in excessive detail. Uh, and only lechers and barbarians were ever portrayed as uncircumcised. So this is probably why Timothy had never undergone circumcision. Normally, St. Paul taught, of course, that circumcision was unnecessary for the Christian. Uh, in fact, he strenuously uh, opposed those early Jewish teachers. I mean, the epistle to the Galatians is really taken up with this argument. He opposes those early Jewish teachers who claimed that Gentiles needed to be circumcised before they could be received as brothers in Christ. But in the case of Timothy, he had Timothy submit to the rite of circumcision so that he would not arouse unnecessary prejudice among the Jews uh, who were going to hear the gospel from Timothy. The Jews would not listen to the uncircumcised. And so for missionary purposes, uh, St. Paul had Timothy circumcised. Let me tell you some of the significant places uh, Timothy shows up in St. Paul's life. Timothy was with Paul when Paul had his vision of the man of Macedonia who had beckoned him in this vision. Come over, help us. Acts chapter 16. This was the call to evangelize what eventually becomes Europe. Timothy was there. Timothy was also there at Berea, which was had a, a reputation for biblical study. Uh, he had been left by Paul in Berea to continue this work of Scripture ministry. He followed Paul to Athens, and then Paul sent him back to Thessalonica. And when he finished there, he went forward and joined Paul in Corinth brought a great report about Thessalonica. In fact, St. Paul talks about Timothy's report in 1 Thessalonians 3, 6, and 7. Uh, if you look at both First and Second Thessalonians, Timothy's name actually appears uh, in the salutations. Um, and when Paul uh, writes from Corinth, um, excuse me, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, Timothy's given the job of carrying his first letter to the Corinthians. Um, and when he writes his second letter to the Corinthians, or what we call his second letter, he addresses it from him and Timothy. So, I mean, he, Timothy had a, a big place uh, to play in the ministry of Paul. Uh, when Timothy uh, was with uh, Paul in Rome, Rome uh, Paul wrote Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. And as I read earlier, Paul expressed his intention of serving Timothy sending Timothy to Philippi as a token of his concern for the believers in that city. And in his last imprisonment in Rome, Paul yearned to see Timothy and urged him to come before winter. Now, we don't know whether he arrived before Paul's martyrdom, and uh, we don't know when Timothy becomes the first bishop of Ephesus, but he does. And um, some have thought that Timothy may have been timid, that he may have lacked stamina, but, uh, you know, none of Paul's co-workers were more active than Timothy. None were more trusted and beloved by the apostle himself. And he died like a martyr. Titus, like Timothy, was also of great usefulness to St. Paul. 
And in his second letter to the Corinthians, he's called a partner, a fellow worker. And this is the same letter, which appears to be uh, in some way co-written with Timothy. So Titus and Timothy give us a glimpse into how creative St. Paul had to be as a missionary, reaching both Jew and Gentile audiences. You remember that he had the uncircumcised Timothy circumcised so Timothy could have credibility in preaching to the Jews. But he adds the uncircumcised Titus to his team as a living example of this great theological truth that Gentiles do not need to be circumcised in order to be redeemed by Christ. So Titus plays an important role in St. Paul's pastoral work, um, really with the Corinthians, There's quite a bit of material on this. St. Paul wrote at least three letters to the Corinthians. Uh, We have only two of them. We've lost one. And what we call 2 Corinthians is actually his third letter. Uh, After writing two letters and paying a visit to Corinth, he has to send Titus because um, the Corinthians had not, he had no record of them repenting. So he sends Titus with this third letter, which is actually 2 Corinthians, and Titus takes a long time to get back. Uh, Paul has to leave to Ephesus. He's troubled. Uh, We're told that he has an anxious spirit. Finally, Titus joins him in Macedonia, and he has great news. The church at Corinth has repented. So in relief and in joy, Paul writes another letter to Corinth. We know it is 2 Corinthians, but it's his third letter. Probably wrote it from Philippi, and he sends it through Titus. He thought Titus was of such stature that he gave Titus responsibility for completing the collection for the poor of Jerusalem. The collection for the poor of Jerusalem was one of St. Paul's most important, uh, one of the most important aspects of St. Paul's ministry. 2 Corinthians 8 has the most material dealing with this collection, and it's there where we see this lengthy commendation of of Titus. So let me, let me read it to you so you get a sense of his estimate of Titus. Thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our financial appeal for the church in Jerusalem, but he's coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we're sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. It's a great line, isn't it? We're sending along with Titus the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. We don't know who that is. (laughs) Nobody knows. Some thought it might be Luke, but there's no agreement. He goes on, What is more, Titus was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry out, out this offering. And we administer it in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we're taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. In addition, we are sending with them our brother, who has often provided to us many ways, showing that he's zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he's my partner. He's my co-worker. And uh, uh, all these men are representatives of the churches, and they are all in honor to Christ. Therefore, Show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. So, you know, Titus was the one to send when there was trouble, when you had to make sure that money was being well taken care of. Titus was the guy you sent. 
He sends him to Crete because Crete was falling into heresy and immorality. He sends Titus to preach sound doctrine and good works. And there's a final reference to Titus in 2 Timothy 4.10, where Paul remarks in passing that Titus has gone on to do mission work in Dalmatia, which is today modern Croatia. You know, if Timothy was a bit timid and needed to be admonished to be strong and of good courage, Titus was the bulldog. He was the one for the toughest of tasks. They're both good models for all Christians, not just for the ordained. And that's a mistake a lot of laity make, thinking that Timothy and Titus are models for pastoral figures only. No way. Ordained or not, we are called to live out our witness in trying circumstances. And both Timothy and Titus lived out their calling remarkably in very trying circumstances. A few minutes, I'll talk to you a little bit about St. Paul's exhortations to Timothy and how they apply to us. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Today, being the liturgical memorial of Saints Timothy and Titus, I thought it would be good to pause and actually try to become acquainted with these two uh, remarkable men who were such close companions of St. Paul, and two men that St. Paul had the highest estimate of. Um, I want to go to uh, letters to Timothy um, and go over a few of the passages there, because a lot, of, a lot of laity kind of write off the pastoral epistles, thinking that those are for you know, clergy. Not true. These are exceptional uh, instructions uh, for all Christians, and that's why they're in the canon of Scripture. Um, let, me, let me go to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, uh, which is a very small phrase. And in, in, I'll read the King James uh, version of it first. Till I come... He's writing to Timothy. Till I come, give attendance to reading. Till I come, give attendance to reading. Now, you can imagine all the kind of interpretation this has been given. Reading what? I mean, uh, some, especially in the 19th and early 20th century, uh, in Protestant circles, this was interpreted to mean that uh, you ought to attend to your studies. Always be at your studies, all your seminary studies. Never sit down without a book. Never sit down without a pen in hand. Uh, make sure you'd never uh, engage, uh, waste your time with unproductive books. Uh, you don't have the time. And uh, nothing uh, in your study should be second rate. Attend to the reading. And by that it meant what I guess we would call academic, academic uh, reading. There is another interpretation of these words, which I think is far better. Uh, reading in, in Timothy's day would probably have meant something like what we call expository preaching today. Um, and St. Paul may have had in mind Nehemiah, uh, the great reformer of the Old Testament, because the preachers of Nehemiah's day stood on wooden platforms and they read the law of God uh, to the people, helping them understand it along the way. So, St. John Chrysostom, St. Augustine also kind of followed this method of expository Bible teaching. Uh, they would, uh, again, preach from the scriptures, expo exposing, expositing, um, bringing what the texts mean to light. Uh, and that might be what St. Paul has in mind here. 
But it certainly has to include this third possibility, that when he's telling him to attend to the reading, he's also saying, let the word of God dwell richly in you. Uh, Colossians 3.16, he actually uses that phrase. You know, it's like he's saying to Timothy, look, Timothy, you've known the Holy Scriptures as a child. Still, you have to continue to call them to mind. You have to be systematic and careful in your reading and meditation on them. And if you do so, you're going to save both yourself and those that hear you. So that's one thing, this idea of attend to the reading. What does that mean? Well, it means at least for all of us to attend to the Word of God. Uh, And this shows up in his letters to Timothy over and over again, the centrality of the Word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15 reads like this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman, who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of God. Um, it's in the King James Version, uh, the phrase is rightly dividing the word of truth. And it is funny. It would be funny, I guess, if it wasn't so serious. But there have been all kinds of idiosyncratic schemes of Scripture that have been uh, devised under this idea of rightly dividing the word of God. Um, and what's funny about this passage is that it's warning exactly against that. It's a warning not to let your own pet interpretations dominate uh, your teaching. Uh, you know, the, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, properly handling the word of God. So if you're properly handling scriptures, what's going to happen is intellectual pride is going to be flattened out. Because if you're properly reading the word of God, handling the word of God, properly using scripture, you're going to have biblical passages jumping out, reproving you, exhorting you, changing your mind and heart. You're going to be encountering a living word. You know, when St. Jerome said ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ, He was implying that the encounter with Scripture leads to the encounter with Jesus. And the encounter with Jesus always puts us in our proper place. It it purges us of our idiosyncrasies and our eccentricities. It keeps us focused on what's important in the proper proportion. You know, um, when you're immersed in Scripture, often overlooked, Unexpected passages of Scripture just leap out at you, and you you find yourself going, whoa, whoa, Lord, what are you saying here? This passage uh, also implies about properly handling the Word of God. It also means getting specific. You probably have heard, as I have, many homilies or sermons that focus on very general, gauzy, even platitudinous themes. Uh, that's not properly handling the Word of God. This is an exhortation to not spend your time and strength on platitudes. Get real. Get specific. Uh, pay attention to the details. The strength of a story is in its details. And, and St. Paul is telling Timothy to properly handle the Word of God, which means give the important passages their due, give the minor passages their due, but stay focused on properly handling the Word of God. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, he also has an interesting passage, which I think is very important today. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. 
He says almost the same thing to Titus in Titus 3, verse 9. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. You know, many times I've seen good men, good women who were walking in the Spirit, had fruitful ministries. Uh, I've seen them get sidetracked by all kinds of controversies. They get hung up on minor disputes by turning them into major issues. And this can be and has been fatal to their growth in grace. In one passage, St. Paul says that some have made a shipwreck of their faith by doing this. Um, Having a contentious spirit creates um, a spirit of disputation, a spirit that's quick to anger and quick to argument. That's what he's warning against here. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Uh, Look, the truths of grace can decay and cease to interest people when they get off on these side tangents. Um, Every truth has to be given its due proportion. Don't major in the minors. Don't minimize the majors. The least controversial points are usually the most weighty and the ones we need to enter into more deeply. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. He also writes to Timothy in uh, the fourth chapter of the second epistle, verse 2, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Yeah, I remember puzzling over this passage many years ago um, when, when I was actually uh, still a pastor. Um, why the need for this exhortation? Why, why do you have to tell Timothy to preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season? I mean, wouldn't the sheer enthusiasm that comes from his spiritual giftedness, you know, he received this remarkable gift, wouldn't the sheer enthusiasm that would come from his relationship to St. Paul? who had seen the risen Christ. Why would such a person need to be admonished to preach in season and out of season? Wouldn't he just do it naturally? And the answer is no. Because no matter how great the experience, no matter how high you've been up on that mountain, no matter what your peak experience has been, you will come down from it. You will hit the valley again. Human beings tire Emotions flatten. Routine dulls dulls us. Sloth sets in. You know, this happens especially when, as a preacher, you get no response. (laughs) Nothing is so depressing uh, for a teacher and preacher than to diligently work at preparing a talk, uh, a passage, you know, exposing a passage of Scripture, only to find that your audience would just as well have gone to lunch early so they could get back for a football game. Uh, this can be very depressing. And it's true for all of us, even if we have never filled a pulpit. Uh, We might start out enthusiastic about sharing our faith. You know, we have a word we want to share. We want to proclaim God's uh, victories uh, to the world. But time after time, you know, we might not see much fruit. And then we eventually stop. That's another spiritual snare that he's warning Timothy not to fall into. Preach in season and out of season. It doesn't matter what the response is. You don't take the credit. You don't take the blame for your preaching. Same thing with us. Don't take the credit. Don't take the blame. Continue to share your faith in season and out of season. Another passage, 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, he writes to Timothy, Let no one despise you for your youth, 
but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. We don't know exactly how old Timothy was, but he probably wasn't a teenager. He may well have been into his 30s. Um, But his age is not that important to us. The basic principle here is clear. Set an example in speech, conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Basically, St. Paul is saying, strengthen the link between belief and behavior. You know, strengthen the link between belief and behavior. For those who proclaim Christ, we have to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. And at the same time, all of us are going to find a disproportion between the glorious truths that we proclaim and the less than glorious way we sometimes live. And St. Paul is telling Timothy to attend to the reading, to the scriptures, all that, preach, properly handle the word of God, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. In other words, you are the epistle, Timothy. You are the living epistle that your audience is going to read. In 2 Corinthians, St. Paul is defending his apostolic mission against his critics, and he pleads with the Corinthians, look, are we beginning to commend ourselves to you again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Look, you yourselves are our letter, inscribed on our hearts, known and read by everyone. He's telling Timothy, just like he was telling the Corinthians, the life we live is our letter from Christ to others. We're letters from Christ, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, and not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Strengthen the link between belief and behavior. Don't give anyone any reason to despise us uh, or our message because of our youth or some other you know, seeming uh, deficiency, uh, our disability, our uh, inconsistencies in our behavior or manner of life. Uh, let's do what we can to strengthen the link between belief and behavior so what we preach is what people see. Now, look, who, who is sufficient for all these things, right? Um, St. Paul knows that only a greater than St. Paul, only a greater than St. Timothy can work this correction in our lives. It's only the Spirit of God. It's only the Spirit of Jesus himself that can ultimately strengthen that link between belief and behavior so that what we preach and what we live looks the same.